If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the book of 1 John for this morning's message and for our time together. This morning, whether you're watching from home or you're watching from the CLC or here in the worship center, we're beginning a brand new sermon series today from 1 John entitled, More Than a Name. More Than a Name. As John pins these words, these are the words of John, the beloved disciple, as, as God is giving him direction in what to say. John, of course, understood that there were many attacks that were coming against the church in his day. Now, now God had prepared the people for this. God had even warned them, and they were prepared for the attacks that would come from the outside. The fact of the matter is the early church was experiencing intense persecution as people would try literally to persecute them and extinguish the name of Jesus. Jesus literally had prepared them, telling them, listen, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. But the attacks that the church weren't really ready for were the attacks that came from within, now, God had spoken through the Apostle Paul to prepare them. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and 29, Paul writes these words. He says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves is an interesting statement. We would hear that one think, well, man, there's an easy solution. Get some hunters out there, right? You got wolves coming into the church. Get some hunters that are ready to take care of business. But he goes on in verse 30 and says this. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In other words, God speaks to the Apostle Paul and says, literally, within the church, there will be people who will come with false ideas and false teachings and false understandings, and they will begin to disseminate that throughout the body, and it will cause a major turning away. In other words, the most severe attacks would not happen outside the church by force, but inside the church by false teaching, false professions, and by false living. What John was addressing many years ago, first century AD, is something that we're still seeing and facing in our culture even still today. The fact of the matter is we live in a day with much confusion. In our culture, we have largely cast aside God and settled for a little g God of our own making. So... We've approached God and his word, frankly, like it's a buffet where we get to pick and choose what we like. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a lot of this and a lot of that. And so long as we put Jesus on the plate, so to speak, we often believe the lie that God is pleased with us, that we're going to heaven when the world is over and that we are still a Christian. But in the context of this series, I wanna kind of challenge that notion. And in the context of this series, I want each of us to really be examining every single week a simple question. Am I truly a follower of Jesus or am I a cultural Christian? Am I a follower of Jesus Christ or am I simply a cultural Christian? Because there's a difference in the two. Let me illustrate for just a moment. In 2009, President Obama openly declared a statement that brought all kinds of backlash from the evangelical world. And here was a statement as he was speaking to a group of leaders from tons of nations, and here's what he said. He said, and I quote, America is no longer a Christian statement. There was all sorts of criticism and backlash. And, and the cry of the conservatives was simply this. Well, how can that be? We are a Christian nation. Look at our founding. Look at our forefathers, how they came here for the express purpose of freedom and worshiping God. Surely we are indeed a Christian nation. 
And while I do not know the president's heart, motives, and intent, the sad reality is, is that much of his statement was actually true. Because if Jesus is truly, if we're truly a Christian nation, that means Jesus is Lord, that he's in control, and we submit to his leadership and direction. So it brings about a question. Think of it this way. In 2019, just before the pandemic, September through November, a large poll, a large survey was taken in America across every region of the country. There were many questions that were asked, but one of the questions that was asked dealt specifically with people's faith. 2019, just before the pandemic, they determined that 65% of Americans identify as Christians. Now that means in a population of our country, 331 million people in America at 65%, that means 215,150,000 people identify as Christians. But that brings about a question, doesn't it? Here's the question. When you look at the culture in America today, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? When you see our laws, for example, and our allowances and condoning of abortion, do you see Jesus? When you see the perversions of sexuality, when you see the manifestations of a pornographic society, when you hear the voices and pressures of the culture around us, do you see Jesus? I think we would largely confess that there's a major disconnect. And then the sad reality today is take it a step further and maybe a step a little closer to home. And maybe we should be asking the question is this, when you see the big C church today, the larger body of Christ, even there, do you see Jesus? Do you see a people that are taking his word seriously? Do you see a people that are submitting our will to the will of God and to the word of God? Or do you see a people, frankly, that's trying to pick and choose what they want to do? What do you see when you see the big C church? Are you seeing the big C church as those that are running into the storm when it seems that everybody else is abandoning? Do you see a people who are genuinely caring for the widows and the orphans and the helpless and the all forgotten? Do you see Jesus in the big C church? But maybe more sobering, the question we really need to be asking is much more intimate and personal, and that is this. In our lives and in our homes, in our spheres of influence, are people genuinely seeing Jesus in us? Like literally, am I living like Jesus? Am I loving others like Jesus? Do I look like Jesus? See, I think what God is calling us to consider through 1 John is simply this. Being a Christian is more than just a title. It's more than just a name. It's more than just a profession. There's something about it that causes us to recognize and understand. If we're genuinely a Christian, we will be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe what John is bringing us to in 1 John is this understanding, this examination that we take in our life to really ask, am I a follower of Jesus or am I a cultural Christian? And there's a difference, a major difference that God wants us to see. So I wanna ask you, if you're physically able, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? More than a name, today we begin with the very simple reality of this. It's all about Jesus. Beginning in verse one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that, you're, so that our joy may be made complete. For this is the message we've heard from him and now announced now to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this morning and for the time that we have together today. Thank you for the freedom that we have uh, here in this nation to come together to read your word. And I pray, God, that we would not just read it. I pray that we would not merely be entertained, but I pray that our hearts and our eyes, our entire being will be open to hear from you, that you would show us where we stand with you, and that when we leave here today, we would all leave here with the, with the assurance, the absolute certainty that we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior and that we're walking in fellowship with him. And I pray it all for his name's sake and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. you may be seated this morning. It's all about Jesus. Perhaps you're wondering this morning, why is it such a big deal uh, being a cultural Christian, why are we addressing that? After all, there's a lot of worse things in the world. I mean, there's, it's not like they're a, a serial killer or some terrible you know, situation or criminal. But the bottom line is this. Oftentimes, the major issue with cultural Christianity is not only does it bring a reproach in the name of Christ, but frankly, it brings about a great deception. It's not so much the deception that you're deceiving other people, but oftentimes Satan wants to bring us to sometimes a place of such cultural norms and such religious activities that we're close to it without actually being saved. And so it creates a false deception in us. But I wanna remind us what John's reminding us in his book, and that is this. We are not saved by what we look like on the outside, but by what God does on the inside. We're not saved by what we look like before man, how we go to church, all of our good works, how we're raised. We're saved by what God does on the inside when we put our faith in Jesus and submit to him as Lord. And John, I believe, points us in these 10 verses to three simple truths that we need to hear today as we consider the fact that it's all about Jesus. The first thing I want you to see this morning is simply this, that is the reality of Jesus. The reality of Jesus. Now, John starts this letter in the most simple and basic ways. There are a lot of concepts and there's a lot of things that he's gonna really kind of cause us to dig into and to really get deep about in our thoughts and our examinations and our reflections in our life. But he starts with a very basic, simple fact. It's kind of like he's starting with the ABCs. I imagine today that many of us can read some really big words. Some of us can read words in various languages. But no matter how many languages we know and how good of big words we can read, the fact is it normally starts with basic building blocks of ABCs and understanding uh, basic terms of vocabulary. John starts in the same way. And he said, Here's, I want you to understand something. There's a reality of Jesus that you need to know. Why is this important? It's important because even in John's day, less than 100 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were people who had begun to infiltrate the church who began to spread all sorts of lies and deceptions about Jesus. For example, one of the key ones in that day was this. He wasn't a real person. 
Jesus was a spirit being, kind of like a ghost, or Jesus was a series of heavenly visions, or Jesus was a conspiracy of these guys who were disciples. And of course, they were quickly proven to be wrong, but the point of the matter is still today. There are people today who will say, well, how did you know Jesus really lived? Did you see him 2,000 years ago? I mean, are you 2,000 years old? How do you know for sure? And John says, listen, let me tell you how we know that Jesus truly lived. The reality of Jesus is simply this. We see it in two ways. First, we see the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Now, God has revealed himself in four primary ways. He's revealed himself in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. He's revealed himself in his holy word, his inspired word. He's revealed himself in the conscience of man, but God has ultimately revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. John simply says, here's how we know Jesus lived. His life was manifested to us in verse two. The word manifest literally means to reveal openly and to show plainly. In other words, the life of Jesus is not something that happened in private. It's not something that happened behind closed doors. It's not something that happened in a vacuum. It's not something that happened secretly or mysteriously. His life literally was lived before many, many people. And that's why John says, listen, I want you to understand something. It's not just about historical facts, though we have them. We know where Jesus was born. We know where he walked throughout the course of his earthly ministry. We know where some of his miracles occurred. We know literally historically where Jesus died. These are historical facts. But John says, let me tell you that there's a firsthand eyewitness account. Verse one, for from the beginning, I can tell you what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, which means to be held. He kind of gazed, if you will, and what we have touched with our Hands. Now, let me illustrate that in a practical way. This maybe is not the best illustration, but let me illustrate it this way. If I were to ask you today, how many of you know that Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr., how many of you know today he actually lived? I wonder how many would say, absolutely, I know that he absolutely lived. Some of you would say, I know that on the basis of the fact that I saw him on television, right? I heard him in that context. But if you were to ask me how I know that Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr. lived, my account would be very different. I would say, absolutely he lived. Let me tell you about the day that I heard him preach this message as I was sitting there on the front row. Let me tell you about the meetings that I had with him as we were talking about worship services and chapel services. I could tell you those things. I could tell you about conversations that we had. I could tell you literally, I remember a day where I got to shake his hand and meet him. I could tell you about the day that the very first time I ever led worship in chapel at Liberty, he came up behind me with his massive King James Bible, smacked me on the back of the head, hit me so hard that my teeth hit the microphone and the microphone went crashing to the ground. I could tell you that. I could tell you about being in the back room sipping coffee and talking about what he wanted to see happen with Liberty University. Why? Because there was firsthand, I was in the room in his presence having conversation. That's what John's doing. John's saying, listen, I want you to know Jesus is not a heavenly vision. He is not a heavenly ghost. He's a real live human being. I was there. I heard him in public and in private. I heard him teach the Sermon on the Mount. I heard him in private as he ministered there to us in the uh, the upper room. Yes, I I saw him with my own eyes. Yes, I touched him as I shook his hand. I touched him as Jesus put his head against my chest there in the upper room. He's telling us loud and clear that Jesus really lived. Why is that important? 
Because God is getting us to the understanding to recognize that not only is his humanity a historical fact, but he identified with us in our humanity. Jesus experienced humanly everything that we face today with one exception, and that is that Jesus never sinned. It was this same John, the beloved disciple in John 4, who taught us how Jesus experienced hunger. It was this same John who taught us in John chapter 11, Jesus' humanity as he experienced deep grief at the passing and the death of a loved one. In John chapter 18, it was the humanity of Jesus on display as we experienced the fact that Jesus experienced rejection, hurt, and betrayal. In John chapter 20, we find that Jesus experienced thirst and great sorrow. John's pointing us to the reality that Jesus truly lived. He lived as a real human being and experienced all the same problems and pains that we experience today with one exception, that he never sinned. But the life of Jesus leads us to something else about Jesus, and that is this. It leads us to the life that is offered through Jesus. See, the reality is today, there are some today, even still today, who will try to deny the deity of Jesus that he wasn't God in flesh. But the reason they do that is because ultimately they cannot dismiss the reality of Jesus. And John says, listen, I want you to know, it's not just that Jesus lived his life, but he did so with a purpose. Jesus came with an express purpose intended for all mankind. Let me tell you what it is in verse two. This life was manifested to us and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you, listen to the next phrase, the eternal life, the eternal life. Many still today believe in heaven and they desire and hope that heaven is genuinely real. But the Bible tells us there is only one way to heaven and literally John says it this way, he is the eternal life. The only way to live forever, the only way to experience the truth and the reality and the promise of heaven, the only way to enjoy that gift of eternal life is through Jesus. John knew all about that. In John chapter one, verses four, verse four, John the beloved says it this way, in him, in Jesus, in this child that was born, in him was life and the life was the light of men. John was there in John chapter 11 as Jesus is approaching Mary and Martha. Their, their brother Lazarus has died and Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Please understand what Jesus is saying is loud and clear. Listen, this physical body's not gonna last forever. Death is gonna come for all of us. The Bible says it's appointed unto man wants to die. And after this, the judgment. But all who believe in Jesus, we will experience the joy and the blessing and the promise of eternal life. We will be in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. John chapter 14 John was there when Jesus said, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come back to receive you to myself. And Thomas asked the million dollar question, but Jesus, how can we know the way that you're going? And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was saying emphatically all throughout the gospel accounts, I am the life. I am the way that you experience eternal life. I am him. Perhaps John's greatest conclusion in simplicity was found in John 3, 16, when he tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting or eternal life. What was John saying? John was saying, listen, Jesus genuinely lived. He died. He rose again from the grave. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I know it happened, but please understand it happened for a reason. It happened so that you and I might experience eternal life. In fact, the entire reason that John is writing this letter in 1 John, he tells us at the end of the book in 1 John 5 verse, 5 verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of some, the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So here's my question that I'm asking today and really throughout this series. Do you know without doubt, without uncertainty, without hesitation, do you know that you have eternal life? If you were to breathe your last today, if you were to stand before God today, do you know that you would be with him in heaven? And if so, why? The reality of Jesus. The second thing I want you to see then is this. It is the relationship with Jesus. John goes on from talking about the reality, kind of he's building, a, he's building a statement, right? He's building the ABCs. Here's the building blocks. First and foremost, you gotta understand, Jesus genuinely lived and he came and lived and died, rose again from the grave to prove that he is the author, that he is the giver, that he is the gift of eternal life. But secondly, he points us to something interesting and that is a relationship. We see it here in verse three. He says, we've seen, we've heard, we've proclaimed to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed... Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship is a word of relationship. In fact, if you and I were today were to, to talk about having fellowship together, I imagine you would talk about it in the context of, hey, we had a conversation together. Maybe we had a meal together. We, we spent time together in that context. The, name, the word fellowship here literally means communion. It means a togetherness. It means a sharing. And John says, listen, Jesus, he's the one who gives eternal life, but I also want you to understand something. In the process of receiving eternal life, you now have fellowship with God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. It's a statement of relationship. Maybe that's where we get a little off track in our culture. Maybe we need to stop asking ourselves, are you a Christian, and instead replace it with this. Do you have fellowship with Jesus? Do you have fellowship with Jesus today? Let me illustrate that. I remember a few years ago now, I was coaching a, a soccer team here in the community. And uh, it was a, a rec team. My son plays on it. I, I enjoy soccer, enjoy getting outside with my kids. And I found it to be a great opportunity and way to build relationships with people. And so as the season went on, the Lord allowed me to build a relationship with a few parents. But specifically, uh, one dad would stay late and we would talk about soccer. And talking about soccer led to conversations about other things. And I'll never forget in the context of this season, that he had a grand, I think it was his grandmother, grand, grandparent who passed away. And so one day after practice, we were talking about some soccer things and I just asked the question, man, how you been doing? And he's like, not good, I've been struggling. And he starts telling me about this death in his family. And so we started talking, he, start, he started talking about heaven, how he knew this loved one was there. And so in the process of this conversation, we're literally probably an hour after practice, I finally asked the question, are you a Christian? Are you, are you a Christian? Have you believed in Jesus? And I'll, I'll never forget how he, he looked down to the ground and he was thinking about it. And he was, I mean, we'd built a relationship at this point. And so he was really respectful and considerate and thoughtful. And 
I'll never forget his answer. He looked up at me in sincerity and he said this, well, I think I've, already, I think I've always been a Christian. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he began to tell me, well, my grandmother was a Christian and you know, she went to church and so my mom and dad took me to church when I was a kid and I went to vacation Bible school every summer. It was awesome. And, you know, then I went to college, all those different things, and, 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 and I got married, and I'm a pretty good guy, and, and I help my neighbors, you know, and I, and I try to give to help other people, and that's why I work in this area of my life. And, and he began to describe all these things he was doing. I, I go to church at Christmas, and yeah, I've I, I pretty much always been a Christian. But the more I listened and the more I asked questions, the more it became a very real statement, a very real conclusion that, this guy was moral, he was religious, he genuinely cared for people, he genuinely loved his family, he genuinely loved his son, he was genuinely respectful and appreciative of his grandmother and her faith, but there was something major missing in his life and that is this. Not one time in his explanation did he describe anything of believing in Jesus Christ, repenting of his sins and accepting the gift of salvation. He assumed because of his background, he assumed because of his moral basis, he assumed because of his conservative roots that that meant he was saved. But I'm here to tell you, you could have been raised in the best family, in the best environment, in the best denomination, in the best country. I'm telling you, you could have all of that and still miss heaven. Why? Because our good works and our good name and our good merit is never enough to save our soul and change our life. Right here in our community, it is so easy to say, you know what, well, I grew up in a Pentecostal home. I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church. Bless God Almighty, I'm saved. I, I grew up Mennonite. I grew up, it doesn't matter. You could be the most kind and merciful person since Mother Teresa. You could be the most knowledgeable person since Ken Jennings, but I'm here to tell you today, unless you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you don't have eternal life. What God is bringing us to this place is recognizing that it's about relationship with Jesus. In fact, Nicodemus one day in John chapter three, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. I mean, this guy, he knew his stuff. Can, can I just be honest with you and tell you? Very few of us know God's word the way that Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. Very few of us have the amount of good, if we're just keeping score here, very few of us would have the amount of good works that Nicodemus had. But in John chapter three, this devoutly religious man comes to Jesus and here's what he says. He says, listen, Jesus, I, I know all the laws and I know all the Old Testament and I'm a teacher and I lead by example and look at all these good works. I have it all, but something's missing. Because what I hear you talking about, and when I hear you talking about eternal life, and I'm seeing the power demonstrated in your life, and I'm seeing the way that you know God the Father, and what you're saying, I don't have that. And Jesus looks at him as he asks the question, what has he got to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers the question in John chapter three. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, but how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, being born of water. Every single one of us here today were born of water. 
It's speaking of the physical birth. We were born, and when we were in our mother's womb, we were surrounded by water, of course, as you know the understanding of that. And when our mother delivered us, we had no control over that. I did not get to predict my birthday, right? Just not how it happened. But God saw fit that I was born on June the 6th, many, many moons ago, okay? That's when I was born. I had no choice over that matter. But when we are born of the Spirit, that takes place when the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us that we have fallen short, that we've missed God's mark. The Holy Spirit convicts us that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus is the way to heaven. And the Holy Spirit in that moment, he convicts us of sin. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus and say, God, would you forgive me? God, would you cleanse me? On the basis of what Jesus did for me, would you save my soul and give me eternal life? And when that happens, the Bible makes it clear that we are born again and the Holy Holy Spirit of God begins to indwell us. John refers to this all in terms of relationship, this fellowship, this communion, this sharing, this togetherness. When you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit begins to indwell you and we begin to abide with Christ in relationship with him. Maybe another way to illustrate that is this. If you view your salvation as a get-out-of-jail-free card, If you view your salvation as fire insurance, if you view your salvation merely as your ticket that's been stamped to heaven, then at best you have a very weak view of salvation and at worst you likely aren't saved at all. The gift of salvation is one of ongoing, abiding relationship with Jesus. And maybe the way to illustrate that is in the context of a marriage relationship. June 21st, 2003, The Lord blessed me with one of the greatest gifts I'll ever receive this side of heaven, and that is that I stood at the altar of a church across, looking looking face to face, eye to eye, with at the time my fiance, Heather Richardson, and she looked at me and she said, I do. And I looked at her and said, "I, I don't know why you do, but I'm thankful that you do, you know, like. And I said, I do. And and we said I do. And in that moment, we entered a committed covenant marriage relationship. Now let me ask you a question. Understanding that's a relationship, do you think I walked away from the altar that day, pulled out my card and checked off the box and say, well, check that one off, bucket list done. Right? Do you think like like I checked it off, like okay, I've arrived, I got married, here we go, we'll see how it ends up as we cross the finish line one day. No, that's not how it works, why? Because it's a relationship. It's one in which we have mutually made covenant with God that we're gonna love each other till, to, to, and to love, honor, and cherish each other till death do us part. And so, so does that mean that it's always perfect? No. Does that mean it's challenging sometimes? Look at me. Of course it's challenging, okay? But we're committed to each other. And because it's a relationship, we're continuing to work that out. We're continuing to work on that. We're continuing to abide together. We're continuing to communicate together and work on those things. Why? Because I understand the nature of relationship. God is looking at us, and listen, when we have a relationship with God, genuinely a soul-saving, life-changing relationship, it's not about fire insurance. It's about the simple fact that God has us in relationship with him, and in relationship with him, we want to know him, and we want to grow in him, and we want to fellowship with him. If we have truly have a relationship with Jesus, we will keep working at our relationship because that ultimately is what it is all about. So often in our Bible Belt culture, Instead of pointing to relationship, we will point to good works. Well, you wanna be right with God? Do this, do this, do this. We come up with our own version of the 10 commandments or more. 
We'll even preach good messages about how you're to imitate Jesus. If you just be like Jesus, then everything will be well. But I'm actually here to tell you today, loud and clear, stop trying to perform religious actions. Stop trying to imitate Jesus because all those will do is cause you to create your own man-made religion. Instead, Run to a relationship, a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And as you know him and as you grow in him, you're not gonna have to work hard to perform. You're not gonna have to work hard to manifest artificial fruit. No, all you do is this, know Jesus, grow in Jesus, and as you do, he lives through you. I'm not having to working on producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As I walk with Jesus and surrender to the Holy Spirit's leading in my life, he naturally does that. So it's not about my rules of what I do. It's simply about relationship. The more I spend time with Jesus, the more he makes me like him. It's that simple. So the fact of the matter is God is calling us to recognize it's about relationship. Many have missed salvation, not because of a lack of good works and good intentions, but simply because their good works and intentions could never be enough. Ephesians 2 says it this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Third thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see in our final minutes here together the results of a relationship with Jesus. If we have fellowship and relationship with Jesus, it will be evident in our lives. We can profess to know Jesus, but if we truly possess a relationship with Jesus, it will be manifested in several ways. And here, John does something very interesting, kind of poetic here. He goes into this series of contrasts. We'll see it again later in the book. But here's what he's doing. He's bringing a contrast between what we say and what we do. What we say and what we do. John understood loud and clear that talk is cheap. Right? Talk is cheap. And so there's a difference here. What are you saying and what are you doing? Many of us can profess all kinds, we can say all kinds of things. But what we're doing reveals the truth about where we stand. Maybe another way to say that is, is how we behave indicates the truth of what we truly believe. Four results of a relationship with Jesus that we see in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Number one. If you genuinely have a relationship, a soul-saving, life-changing relationship, you have a changed walk, a changed walk. The word walk is used in the New Testament to describe our lifestyle, our conduct, and how we are living. If you know Jesus and have a relationship with him, it's not just a form of religion. It's not just a form of good works. You have a changed walk. Here's what the Bible says in verse five. This is the message that, we have, that we've heard from him and we now announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Picture the illustration here. John says God is light. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself said in the Gospels, I am the light of the world. And so if you and I are adopted into God's family as children of light, if we are walking with the light of the world, Jesus, guess what's gonna happen? The light is gonna begin to bring about purity in our life. 
If we're walking in the ways of the world, doing the things that we know are not pleasing to God, then instead we're walking with darkness. It's an amazing thing about light, and that is this, that light is never defiled by darkness, but light reveals what's hidden in the darkness. Always. It reveals what's hidden in the darkness. I remember years ago, uh, being on an ministry team at Liberty, and we had gone, I illustrated this a few weeks ago, but a little bit different aspect of this illustration. We'd gone to Burlington, North Carolina, and I remember that the pastor had given, um, basically the, the church had reserved a hotel room for me and the four guys that were uh, on our team. And I remember pulling up to this, um, I say hotel, this motel, and I remember immediately pulling up thinking, man, this is kind of a shady side of town, you know? And, and even from the outside, I thought, I don't, I don't know how clean this is gonna be. And I'll never forget, I was already a little skeptical and I'll never forget, I was the first one. I opened the door and turned on the light and as soon as I did, you saw all the creepy crawlies. You know, it was just like, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. You know, I, I, I immediately, maybe this is me being a, uh, you know, not so courageous or whatever, but I was like, boys, I'm sleeping in the van tonight. We had one crazy guy on the team. Oh, you bunch of chickens. I'm going to sleep in the hotel. I was like, that, at your own risk, buddy. He got in the hotel about three o'clock in the morning. He crawled into the 15 passenger van as well. You know, it was really, really exciting. Why? Because when you turn that light on, it exposes what's hidden in the dark. You and I today, if we truly know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our desire is not to keep walking in the darkness that we were in. Why? Because the light has revealed the darkness. The light has revealed that which was filthy and that which was inappropriate. The light has revealed those things that frankly were disgusting in our life. And as we walk in the light, God is calling us to walk closer and walk closer and to walk closer. This morning when we were in the eight o'clock service, I was preaching right at this exact point. And, and as I was getting, getting to this point, we had a technical issue and difficulty and all the lights in the building went off. <sighs> right? It was hilarious because it was like, man, this isn't supposed to be this way. And everybody's looking around like, what happened? Who did it? What, what went wrong? Do we have electricity? What's the issue? Why? Because it was offsetting, if you will. If you and I profess to be believers of Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world. And so one of the evidences is that we should be walking in the light, not continuing to walk in the darkness. So here's a question. What is your lifestyle, your walk today, revealing about your relationship with Jesus? That's the question. I remember years ago, I was somewhere between fifth and seventh grade, right around the middle school ages, and the reason I remember that is because of a responsibility I had in our house, and that was between fifth and seventh grade, it was my responsibility to take care of all the animals at the house. And at that time in our life, we had sheep, right? We had about five acres of lamb, Montgomery, Alabama, and we had about 30 sheep. It was the most sheep we'd ever had at this point, and it was a great way to learn responsibility. And I remember one Sunday afternoon, I had brought a buddy over to my house. His name was Jason Lamon. We're playing basketball, and we're like typical middle school guys. Like we're, we're focused on lunch and playing basketball as quickly as we can, and that's all I cared about. And I remember it was getting about that time to go, get, go inside, get dressed, go back to the church for Sunday night services. Then my dad called me to the back porch. I come running to the back porch. He said, you gotta go check on the sheep right now. Of course, I'm a middle schooler. My buddy's there. I don't wanna go check on the sheep right now, right? So, dad, why? Because there's something in the flock that doesn't belong there. What? Matthew, there is something walking with the sheep that's not a sheep. It's your responsibility to go check it out. And of course, I'm pouting and huffing and puffing. I go over to the edge of the fence. My dad has looked across this five-acre field and I look back, how do you know? How do you know that's not a sheep? And it looked like a perfectly normal sheep to me. Now, I'll never get him saying, watch the way it walks. <laughs> so I remember 
getting out on that field, walking across our pond, getting to that far corner. And the closer I got, the more I realized, hating to admit it, my dad was right. It wasn't a sheep walking in that flock. There was a baby deer, a fawn. We were able to get that deer and, and nurse it for a little while. So Pastor, what are you saying? The evidence of whether or not we're truly in the flock, in Jesus' fold, that he's our good shepherd, is largely seen by our walk. So what is your walk revealing about your relationship with Jesus? Secondly, not only is it revealed through our changed walk, but secondly, if we are in relationship with Jesus, we also have a changed fellowship. Notice what he says in verse seven. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with, key phrase, one another. Again, the same word for fellowship that's used of our fellowship with God the Father and with his son Jesus Christ is now pointing us to the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters with one another in the body of Christ. Again, the word means a sharing, it means a togetherness, and it means a unity that we have, a bond that we have in Christ. It's incredible to consider that no matter what state you're from, what nation you're from, what language you know, what denomination you grew up in, it's incredible to know, regardless of your background, if you have believed in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, that makes us family. And the Lord has allowed me beyond, uh, just by his grace and mercy, the Lord has allowed me so many opportunities to be in other nations and in other places. And there are times I have no idea what they're even saying because I don't know the language. But when there is a unity in Christ, there is a familial bond that nothing in this world can even remotely describe. It's amazing. Because why? Because we have the love of Christ in us. And when we have the love of Christ in us and we're walking in the light, it will manifest itself in the way that we care and the way that we fellowship and the way that we relate with one another in the body of Christ. We see this so clearly in the book of Acts. Acts chapter two, 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls in one day come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely incredible. Notice the immediate result after that. Acts chapter two, verses 42 and then following. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions. They were sharing them with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Time out. The apostles weren't even having to tell them they should do this. The, the apostles were not even having to preach. Hey, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but come together all the more as you see the day. They wouldn't even have to be told this. Why? Because the love of God was so uh, manifested in their life that it demonstrated itself through the way they loved one another. So, so let me ask you a question. What does your fellowship with others in the body of Christ, demonstrate to you today about your relationship with Jesus. For some, it may bring about the reality that, hey, there's been an offense that's taken place and you need to forgive someone. Perhaps it might bring about the revelation that there's been a hurt that's there that you need to heal from. 
But can I just be blunt honest with you today and say, if you've never had a desire for fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to examine far deeper than what just someone did. You need to truly examine, do you know Jesus Christ? Because if Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he willingly died and gave his life for this bride called the church, then doesn't it stand to reason that we too will have a love and a desire to fellowship and be with brothers and sisters? Third thing I want you to see is this. Not only do we have a change, uh, uh, a change in all these areas, a change in fellowship with one another. Third, we have a change response to sin. And I'm gonna wrap up here fairly quickly. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us something very interesting, and that is this. Being a Christian does not mean that you are perfect, right? Being a Christian doesn't mean that we are perfect. There's only one perfect person who ever walked the face of this earth, and his name is Jesus. But being a Christian doesn't mean that we're perfect. In fact, we still stumble and we still fall. We still sin and fall short of God's glory. God is perfect, he's holy, he's righteous and true. And because we still struggle, even as a child of God, we still battle this old flesh, we still deal with temptations in the culture around us. The fact of the matter is, we fall short at times. We sin. But what separates a believer from an unbeliever in that context, largely, is how we respond to sin. And an unbeliever will completely deny the existence. I'm not a sinner. I haven't done anything wrong. An unbeliever will condone sin. Well, it might be sin, but it's not that big of a deal compared to what somebody else is doing. I mean, after all, I'm not like that TV preacher over there. An unbeliever will excuse sin. Well, yeah, I did wrong, but if it wasn't for what so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so did, then I wouldn't have done what I did. An unbeliever will excuse it. An unbeliever will simply try to cover it up. Oh, never happened, never happened, never happened. Never happens in politics today, Right? All of these represent both an ignorance and a flippant attitude towards sin. But that is not the case for a believer. A believer does something interesting. First John chapter 1, verse 9, there's an invitation. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins. Here's how a believer responds to sin. A believer understanding that my sin was a missing the mark, a falling short of God's glory, a believer understanding the weight of my sin. I'm not gonna condone it. I'm not gonna minimize it. I'm not gonna dismiss it. I'm not gonna shove it under the rug. No, the believer recognizing that my sin ultimately cost Jesus his life on the cross. He was dying for me in my place. A believer does something different. He confesses it. The word confession literally means to say the same thing. It means in confession that we are agreeing with God that what we did was wrong, that it was a sin against him. It's a turning from it and turning to the Lord. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, confession simply means being honest with ourselves and with God, and if others are involved, it is being honest with them too. It is more than admitting sin. It means judging sin and facing it squarely. So the believer... When they sin, they don't act like nothing happened. No, they confess it to God. God, I know this is a sin against you. It, it was a sin for me to lust. It was a sin when I gossiped. It was a sin when I whatever. 
God, I agree, and I turn from it. Please forgive me and cleanse me. There's a humility and a brokenness in that when we realize the weight of our sin. And the final thing we see, the result of this relationship is this. We have a changed standing before God. Christian, if you're genuinely a follower of Jesus, we should never be looking down upon others because of their sin. Because those who realize what their sin was, we realize the only reason, the only reason we are in relationship with God is by his grace and his mercy. The Bible tells us when we confess our sins, something happens, verse nine. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love the way we see that in verse seven. He says this, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Being a Christian doesn't make us better than anyone. Being a Christian just simply means by God's grace, we're following and believing in Jesus. And because we've confessed our sins and believe in Jesus, our standing has been changed. We have been forgiven and we have been washed clean. David, when he sinned in Psalm 51, he prayed and said, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 70, Christ, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Can I just remind you today, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad the darkness is. I don't care how bad all the filth is. I don't care all those different things, but here's what I do care about. I want you to know today, if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess your sins today, he can forgive you and he can cleanse you and he can wash you whiter than snow. Paul said the same, and I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul's looking at a church that frankly looked no different than the world around them in many ways. And he's, call, he's writing to call them out to obedience to God. He's calling them out to walk in holiness. Six, he says this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. For neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I know many believers at that point that get very pharisaical and self-righteous. But Paul continued. And such were some of you. Listen to this statement. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by your name, by your grandmama's faith, by your good works, by all the things you've done in church. No, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Here's my question for you today. Have you been washed clean? Well, yeah, man, I go to church, man. I pray, I give. No, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. That's religion. Have you been washed clean?
Well, my, my grandmother went to church. My grandfather was a preacher. My daddy took me. And I mean, all they gave me a great example. No, 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 I, I'm not asking about your grandparents. I'm not asking about your mom and daddy. Have you been washed clean? Man, I grew up in this denomination and this is what we did. And I went through this class when I was 13 and they sprinkled me at this time. That's not what I'm asking you. Have you believed in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? And have you been washed clean? And then secondly, what's the evidence in your life that you've been washed clean? I think if we're honest with it today, there are some of us here today that need to come to the conclusion, you know, I'm thankful for my foundation. I'm thankful for some of the things that I've been taught. I'm thankful for these things, but I have not accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so today, Lord, I come. Would you save me? For some of us, that's our next step. Some of us say, I mean, I, I never had any of that. I, I, I'm, just, <laughs> I, I'm just a sinner who needs God's grace. And I'm telling you, we come the same way. Whether we had a religious background or not, we come the same way. We come by faith to believe in Jesus, to confess our sins, and turn to him for salvation. But there's some of us here today, we've been saved. We know we don't deserve to be here. We're only here because God and his grace washed us clean. <laughs> and if you've been washed, here's what I want to ask you to do today. If you've been washed, I simply want to ask you to tell God, thank you. God, thank you for washing me clean and setting me free. And God, would you help me to go from this place today with a grace, a compassion, and a mercy to find someone else who needs to be clean. Being a Christian is more than a name. It means that Jesus is the Lord of our life. My question for us today is this, is he yours? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the ways that you speak to our heart and life and I pray that you would speak loud and clear right now. I pray that we would be courageous to ask that question. Am I a follower of Jesus or am I just a cultural Christian? Am I doing a bunch of religious works or do I have a relationship Jesus. God, I pray right now that you would show us where we stand. And I pray that you would remind us of the assurance of that promise. We can be clean. We can be washed whiter than snow. We can have a relationship with you. So God, would you work in our lives right now? I pray in Jesus' name.